This morning's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 18 to 29. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when you will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. You know, last week... Um... The message was from John chapter 5, and there was, uh, and then this week and next week, it's kind of like it flows together from John chapter 5, but as I was thinking about the, I was thinking about this passage of scripture that was just read, and then the passage that's going to be preached on next week, it reminds me of a story (laughs) that I read recently, which it goes something like this, there was, um, it takes place in the mountains of the northwest, and a man was sitting by his campfire, and he was cooking uh, some kind of bird over the fire with eager anticipation, getting ready to enjoy his dinner. And then a forest ranger came up under the camp, and the camper, he asked the camper what he was preparing for dinner. And the camper replied that it was a seagull. And then a, you know, a frown came on the ranger's face, and he said, you know, it's against the law to kill that particular bird, so I'm going to have to give you a citation. And the camper said, you know, I I lost my way. I ran out of food. In desperation, I I managed to kill the seagull and to get my strength back. And the forest ranger listened sympathetically, and he said, okay, I'll just let you go with a warning this time. And he thanked the camper, you know, he he said, thank you so much. And just as the ranger was about to leave, he asked the camper, well, just out of curiosity, what does seagull taste like? And thinking for a moment, the camper said, you know, I would place it somewhere between a spotted owl and a bald eagle. (laughs) 
Uh, you hear, if that camper would have just kept his mouth shut, right? He ended up getting in a lot more trouble. He would have better been better off to say nothing at all. Well, some people think that our Lord Jesus' words here in this text are something like that, that camper statement. You see, at the outset, Jesus is accused by the Jewish leaders of breaking the Sabbath law, breaking the Sabbath rules that they had made, and then encouraging other people to break them as well. And after our Lord defends his actions to the Jewish authorities, they realize and they recognize that he's guilty of something even greater. He's claiming to be equal with God. As if breaking the Sabbath wasn't bad enough, now he's claiming equality with God. And that gets him in a lot more trouble. So like I said, chapter 5 can kind of be broken down into thirds. Last week, Jesus encountered the paralytic man at the pool and the pool that some people thought had miracle powers, but this guy had been an invalid for 38 years and he had never been healed at the pool. But he was healed after Jesus spoke to him. He was able to pick up his mat and leave. Well, in the next two sections, Jesus offers a defense to the Jewish leaders of his actions. So when it says that Jesus answered there, he um, basically, this is his answer. This is his defense in two parts. This week is part one. Next week, Greg will preach on part two. And this week, we're going to look at the source of Jesus' authority. Next week, it's about Jesus' defense uh, from the witnesses of Jesus. And all of these, these defense, all these verses flow out of this, these accusations that the, Jewish leaders, that, that the Jewish leaders made to Jesus, saying, you know, you're blaspheming the Lord, that you're blaspheming the name of God because you are claiming equality with God. So it wasn't the healing necessarily that got Jesus in trouble, and it wasn't the breaking of the Sabbath, even though that was bad, but in verse 18, it says this is why they were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling himself God, making, calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. That's why they were so upset with him. In fact, if you remember when Jesus got arrested and they took him to the, the Pilate, they said he is claiming uh, equal with God. He is blaspheming in the name of the Lord. That, and then according to our law, he should be killed. That was their accusation. That's ultimately why they wanted Jesus to be put to death, the, the reasoning that they gave. So they knew what he was claiming. He knew what he was claiming. And it, everybody knew what he was saying, that he was claiming to be equal with God. Well, Jesus was revealing himself God. That was the basis. He is saying, that's the basis of my authority. Jesus it stresses his deity by describing his unity with the Father in these verses. And once we see that his deity and his, uh, that he is Lord, his authority over us becomes obvious and his authority demands our obedience. So on the first verses, you know, on the surface here, these verses don't seem that spectacular. They don't contain, you know, that, you know, pizzazz, that punch. There's no witty back and forth. There's no miracle that's taking place here. But Jesus places great emphasis on these words because of those that phrase, truly, truly. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. In the Greek, it's actually amen, amen, I tell you. And he used those words because that was the best way he could use to emphasize it, which we kind of lose a little bit in the translation. In the KJV, the King James, it says, verily, verily. In the NIV, it says, very truly, I tell you, or indeed, or the, uh, the New English translation says, I tell you the solemn truth. So three times he says, verily, verily, or 
This is really important. So we know that Jesus is making a, a very strong point here. These words, like I said, they're not like full of pizzazz. It's not something that you would necessarily memorize or like put on a t-shirt. But J.C. Ryle, he wrote, nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making a, such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this discourse. So we find it right here that Jesus is saying like, this is him laying it out. It's a formal, systematic, orderly, regular account of his unity with the Father and of his deity, so it's his authority. And so we must submit to his authority and obedience. We talk about God as, as Christians, we talk about the Trinity. Some of us get tattoos of it on our arms. Um, we talk about the Trinity. It's what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Even similar Abrahamic faiths like Judaism and Islam, they don't believe in the triune God. And there are false religions that appear to look like Christianity because they use some of the same scriptures that we do. They have some of the same language that we have. But they also do not believe in the Trinity. Foundationally, or basically speaking, when we talk about Trinity, we're talking about God's being. That there is one God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each one person is God, but the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son or the Father. And the, the, son, the Spirit, I said the sp Son is not the Father or the Spirit, right? There is unity, however, there is distinctness. There is a threeness. That was the first English way of trying to explain this was threeness. Now we use the word tri as in three, unity, tri, unity, trinity. Even though the word trinity is not in the Bible. When we talk about that too, there's another way to explain that. In addition to, uh, in addition to how we talk about the state of being, there is the function or the roles, uh, the distinct roles of each member of the trinity. For example, when talking about the redemption of sinners, it was the Father who planned salvation and sent the Father sent the Son into the world. It was the Son who came, born as a baby, who accomplished our salvation by His death on the cross and resurrection. And it's the Spirit who applies the work of the Son to us in regeneration and causing us to be born again. So each person of the Trinity had a distinct role. The Father or the Spirit didn't die on the cross for us. It was the Son who did that. It was the Father who sent the Son and then at one point, Jesus says, the Father and the Son send the Spirit to us. In fact, when Jesus, in his, in the, later on in the book of John, in his final discourse, he actually says, like, the Spirit is just like me. Different, but just the same. So it's confusing, right? Clear as mud. But it, and, and Christians throughout all of history have been trying to explain what we mean when we talk about the Trinity. But we have come to, the, to, rely, uh, to, to settle on the words that we believe in one God in three persons. They are distinguished in terms of what they do. So in this passage, there are ways that the Son shows that He is equal to the Father, yet distinct in His roles. And we know that He's equal to the Father. Remember John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John sets it out right from the beginning that Jesus is God. He was with God and He was God. And they are unified. Jesus lays out His defense in three distinct steps here. Uh, first of all, Jesus is going to say that he does only what God can do. And secondly, he receives honor that only God can receive. 
And thirdly, he has the power that only God has claimed to have. So he does only what God can do. He, he receives honor that only God, the Father, receives. And he has the power that only God can claim. So let's look at these one at a time. The first is found in verse 19. Jesus says he does nothing on his own. Everything he does is in perfect concert with the Father's work and will. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. So the Son isn't out to make a name for himself. He's not got his own plan on the side on the way to the cross. He is singularly focused on doing the will of the Father. He is imitating the Father. If you have kids, you know this is true, that sometimes our kids, for good or bad, imitate us. Well, this is what the Son is saying here. Thankfully, he has a perfect Heavenly Father, because we as parents are not perfect. So he is imitating his perfect Father in Heaven, walking in perfect obedience to the Father. And if you notice in this section too, there was a word for keeps appearing here. And that was the first four he says in verse 20. Uh, the first four, um, uh, verse 19, for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Then in verse 20, the second four, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So why does he do this? How does he do this? Well, it's because the Father loves him. That's why. And how does he do it? He shows him what to do. It's interesting that the word loves, usually in, in the Bible, in referring to God, it's the word agape. That's the love described between the Father, Son, and Spirit in the Godhead there. But instead of that word, the word that John uses here, the word actually that, say that Jesus is using here, is the word phileo. It's the word for friendship love. So we know that friends who, who love each other, they share, have things in common with one another, so they, they share it with one another. Jesus is uh, a separate person. He has the power to act on his own, but by virtue of his love and his identity with the Godhead, he says, I'm not doing anything separate than God the Father. He loves me, he shows me what to do, and I imitate him, I do those things. The third four statement is actually halfway through verse 20. And it says here that Jesus, he's referencing the works that he has already done. Greater works than these he will show him, he says, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And so Jesus references the miracles that he's already done, those that have been recorded, and plus the miracle of the, the invalid that was at the pool for 38 years. And Jesus said there's even going to be greater works that are done. Greater works like raising people to life. And if you look at verse 21 and verse 26 together, we can see clearly that Jesus has the ability to give life because like God in heaven, he has life in himself. Like there's no external thing giving him life. He has life in himself. And in the Old Testament, that was a way of, of explaining that there's certain things that God can do because only God is God. There are certain things that God has and he's able to do because he is God. One of those things, they actually talked about three keys. And I, I found this very interesting when I was re researching this. Three keys that, that God had, that only God had. One was the power to open the heavens for rain. And secondly, the power to open the womb for birth. And thirdly, the power to open the grave for resurrection. And so when you look in the Old Testament, when you look at... Uh, in the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, whenever somebody said, hey, can you do this to one of the leaders? They, their response kind of was like, I can't bring somebody back to life. Who do you think I am, God? You know, only God has that power. And I never noticed that before. It's something I learned new this week. I never noticed that before that, like, if you wanted to say, I'm not God, 
you would say, I don't have the power to give life. Only God can give life. And Jesus says in verse 26 and verse 21, I have life in me, just like only God has life in himself. And then the final four here is in verse 22. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. So this is a job only reserved for God. If Jesus has the authority to give life and to judge, then he must be God. So maybe somebody else could heal a person, but Jesus can do far greater works. He will raise the dead to life. He will personally rise from the grave himself. And when he does so, those who oppose him will marvel, it says in verse 20. Jesus is basically saying, hey, you saw me heal a lame man and explain that away by saying, well, he has no authority over us. But wait until you see in John 11 and 12, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And then he himself is going to rise from the dead as well. So he's like, how are you going to explain that? I and the Father are one. We are one. I am God in the flesh. So Jesus has the authority that comes from the fact that he can do only what God can do. And secondly, Jesus receives honor that only God receives. See in verse 23, it says that. Actually, if you have the Christian Standard Bible, it would say so that. And anytime you see so that, it's like an explanation here. It's a result of what has just been said. So all these four statements, those four, four F-O-R statements that I just went over, leads to the fact in verse 23, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And the word honor there is that sense of holy fear of God, which is, again, this is uh, was revolutionary to the, to the people hearing this, the Jewish people hearing this. Ironclad evidence of Jesus' deity. I mean, we read in Isaiah chapter 48, God says, I will act for my own sake. Indeed, my own. How can I be defiled? I will not give my glory to another. I will not give my glory to, the other, to another. That's like all through the Old Testament. God, Yahweh, the Lord, he's acting on behalf of his own namesake. And he will not give it to another. Well, it says in verse 23, Jesus says that I may receive that honor. Because the Father and the Son are one, to reject the Son is to dishonor the Father. So Jesus is tying his authority directly to the authority of God himself. Do you know the Jewish people, they repeat every day, even back in Jesus' time, the Shema. The Shema, it means here, because it's the phrase, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so, by saying this, he's saying, I am equal to the Father. Even today in our society, to hear what Jesus is saying, that's kind of a direct attack on the religious pluralism that we, that we have so much in our culture as well where people will say, you know, every religion is the same. And you Christians are intolerant because what we believe is every religion is not the same. That they're at, the door is open to everyone, but everyone must go through the same door. That is Jesus Christ. Where he said that the only way to the Father is through the Son. So God's word is very clear. Any system of worship that does not honor Jesus Christ, the true God, is from hell. It is a lie from Satan. And society might tell us that Christians are intolerant because we believe that we have to put our faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. John Calvin wrote these words 450 years ago. They're still true today. He, says, he said, Muslims and Jews give the, the God they worship beautiful and magnificent titles. However, we should remember that whenever God's name is separated from Christ, it is nothing more than empty imagination. 
So what good is an imagination if it's empty, right? The only useful imagination is a full one. And an empty imagination is worthless, as like worshiping God apart from Jesus Christ. So what does submission to God look like? Well, it begins by following Jesus' instructions in verse 24, he says there. He says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So any talk of obeying God or following God or pleasing him is empty or meaningless if you, uh, until you've accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Later on in John chapter 6, he says, the work that we do is believing him. We believe that he did the work for us. So we can't say things like, oh, Jesus is, was a great teacher. He was a pretty cool guy. He said some really interesting things. I mean, think about that from the perspective of God. God made you, you rebelled against him, and instead of punishing you, he puts in a plan to rescue you instead. And the plan required him sending the son that he loved to be born as a human being, live a perfect life, and die a horrible death so that you could be forgiven of your sins and freed, set free. And all you can say is, oh, that's, that's nice. I really respect that about him. Now, God didn't send his son into the world for you to, re- to earn your respect. He sent the son into the world so that you could be saved. And the only way to be saved is by throwing yourself at his feet in humbleness, asking him to forgive you of your sins. Jesus does only what God can do, and he receives honor that only God deserves. And thirdly, he has the power that only God can claim. Verse uh, 24 says, truly, truly, to show those importance of those words. That, And then verse 25, truly, truly, again, believe in Jesus and you will have eternal life. It says in 24 and 25, truly, truly, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And so this is an aspect of God's kingdom. I think it's interesting, by the way, on, down in verse 28, it says the hour is coming. But here in 25, it says the hour is coming and is now here. So it's a different time. This is an aspect of God's kingdom. We talk about um, the already but not yet of God's kingdom. So God's kingdom arrived with Jesus' arrival. It came with his death and his resurrection. The kingdom of God is here and it's coming. So it's here with Jesus and it's spreading as people receive, hear the gospel and they respond in repentance of faith. As people submit themselves to, to Jesus as Lord and Savior, then God's kingdom grows. It's called like, we call that the invisible church. This is, we are gathered in the visible church, but this is called the invisible church. When verse 25 is about spiritually dead people being raised to spiritual life when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the resurrection, like, because you are dead in your sins and now you are alive in Christ. Our resurrection is now tied to Jesus' resurrection. Our spiritual resurrection to new life comes when we put our faith in Jesus' physical resurrection. We read in Scripture, for, for as in Adam all die... So in Christ, all shall be made alive. So we were dead in Adam, now we are alive in Christ. Or as Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. So it is no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave Himself for me. I'm dead and my old way is gone. And if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Raised to new life in Christ. No longer the old person. The old is dead and gone. And you have new life in Christ. That's why one of my favorite verses is John 17.3. Now this is eternal life, that you may know Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. That's eternal life. So eternal life is life with, with God our Father in heaven, with Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, and it can begin now. And Jesus says the hour is coming, and it's now here. But then he talks about something else in verse 28. So this is a whole, 28 is, there's actually, you can see like four different resurrections. There's a resurrection, a spiritual resurrection to new life. Then he kind of talks about his personal resurrection. Jesus is going to be resurrected. And then in verse 28, he says there is an hour coming now. So there's going to be a future time when all who are in the tombs will rise physically for every person. At that time, it says in verse 29, there will be two more resurrections. Resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment. So not based on our works. It says, verse 29, those who have done good. And like I said, um, this isn't um, a salvation based on works. Our work that we do in John, he says, is to believe in the one who sent us. And he's already made it clear, like from John 3.16 and John 3.17, that we are saved uh, through our faith in Jesus Christ. And then to do, those who have done evil, it says at the very end of that, well, doing evil is rejecting the Son. And this, so there's going to be this final resurrection, this final, um, this final judgment, is, and Jesus is going to be a part of that, and he's going to do what only God can do. You know, it's one final thing, and that is that this power to bring life, this authority to execute judgment was given to Jesus, and he says right there at the end of verse 27, it's capitalized, the Son of Man. It's verse 27. You know, I've talked about this title that we talk about Jesus as our Lord and, and Savior, right? We talk about Jesus as our King. But Jesus talked about himself as Son of Man. More than any other title, he used that title for himself. And he didn't just make it up. It comes from Daniel's vision of the throne room of God. And God's title in Daniel chapter 7 is Ancient of Days. We hear that in some of the hymns and songs that we sing. Oh, Ancient of Days. And listen to these words from Daniel 7, 9 and 10. Daniel says, I kept watching, seeing this vision in heaven, and thrones were set in place, and Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. So we have this picture of judgment taking place. Tens of thousands upon tens of thousands gathered around this throne. And this image that Daniel uses of fire coming out of the throne. And remember, what did we read in Isaiah? God said, I'm not going to give my glory to another. I reserve glory for myself and myself alone. But skip on down a few verses to chapter uh, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, he says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. 
and his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. You know, in Philippians chapter 2, when we read about Jesus coming in the flesh, we read that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, and that he was resurrected and that he was ascended and that he was given glory and dominion and power and authority. And he was given that name that is above all names, so that the name of Jesus Christ, that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is the Son of Man, and he was given dominion and authority and glory and a kingdom that will last forever. And the story of the gospel message is that the King has come. The King has come. Will his subjects obey? And so that's the most pressing question. Will we submit to the authority of Jesus Christ? And will we seek to bring every area of our lives under his control? What difference is it making in our life? Hebrew National Hot Dogs, they make 100% premium kosher beef hot dogs. And on the package underneath it says, we answer to a higher authority which is great for a hot dog company, right? But that should be the slogan that is written on our hearts and our daily lives as well. Is the authority of Christ affecting how you interact with other people, how you discipline yourself, how you respond to criticism, how you spend your time or your money? Can that slogan be your slogan as well? As Christians, our confession is Jesus Christ is Lord and our commitment is to submit to His Lordship in every area of our life. And I want to end with this familiar quote. I've used it before, but familiar quote from um, Mere Christianity of C.S. Lewis's words where he says that um, he takes those words of Jesus. I mean, think about what we just heard here. And he wrote, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying really foolish things that people often say about Jesus. Where they say is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who merely said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh, and his authority demands our obedience. He demands all honor, and he demands all glory. What a marvelous Lord we serve.